This is a Federal News Network podcast. In a city filled with museums, large and small, this one is a standout. After a two-year hiatus for renovation, the Drug Enforcement Administration Museum has reopened its doors to the public. Yep, the DEA Museum. Here with some of the highlights, Museum Director Jan McKay. Ms. McKay, good to have you on. Well, thank you, Tom. It's nice to be here. And I guess you were kind of lucky to close for renovation in the same two years that the pandemic probably would have kept everybody away anyhow. Yeah, you know, it really gave us an opportunity to craft a beautiful new museum for uh, the the community and for America, actually. And so we took the opportunity to really update the museum, to use all the best practices in museum design and interactivity. And uh, we came up with something that's just quite amazing and um, really a showstopper. And what is the purpose of this museum? Because you don't think of drug enforcement as something necessarily a highly visual activity, except for the arrests and, and the Klieg lights and that kind of thing. Yeah, you know what? I hear you because a lot of people misunderstand what DEA is about. So uh, the, the museum is very comprehensive in that it does explain DEA's history and what we do as an agency and what the people of DEA do. So it's not just about uh, federal agents per se, but also about all the other roles that people play here at DEA. So there's a large component there, but then there's also a large component that talks about the careers that uh, people can, uh, young people can think about. But moreover, there's a lot about drugs as you might expect and the history of drugs and uh, the uh, history of drug use and misuse in a whole area that's uh, interactive timelines on specific drugs, actually. And drugs have been a scourge for the United States for a long time, both in terms of public health, in terms of personal tragedies that drug use has produced, and in terms of federal effort. So I guess when you add that up, you've really got a lot of ground to cover. You know, we really do. And the museum is part of the Community Outreach and Prevention Support Services of DEA. And there are a lot of people working in that end of things. So we're the flagship kind of the the physical uh, manifestation of that. And uh, we just love uh, that the museum's for all ages. And so when it was redesigned, it was created to make sure young people feel comfortable. And we have all the whiz bang technology and all the things they can touch and do. Little ones can listen to a tip line. Parents who love artifacts, we have 180 on exhibit uh, out of the DEA museum collection. And there's something for everybody to see and do. And then really importantly, uh, the museum has added an education space in the museum itself. So we can host school groups and other kinds of groups that want to come in and get a more immersive one-on-one experience with some of our employees. Perhaps with the opioid and the fentanyl epidemic manifesting itself in a way that is really difficult for the nation, there must be a lot of interest in that type of presentation in in this lecture and an event space? Yes, actually, we're, we have a lot of curriculum on our museum website for schools and teachers, but we also do uh, lectures and presentations every quarter. In fact, one's coming up in June that is especially interesting. It's about how drug production across the globe and here in America affects the environment. And uh, we're really excited to bring that and pull that together, and it'll be uh, the third week of June. I don't have the exact date yet, but it's forthcoming. On top of that, we have had many, many, many school groups um, from college kids that are tourists visiting to uh, uh, students from the the area itself. And what's unique about the DEA Museum is when you make that reservation, 
we try and match you up with the right employee about the right topic that the teacher is actually interested in. And so we're very proud of that. And we're just getting started on that as well. We're speaking with Jan McKay. She is the director of the Drug Enforcement Administration Museum. And yeah, just highlight that for us. Is it generally open to the public? Do you have to need a reservation to come in or how does that all work? Yes, we're free. We're open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. in the morning till 4 p.m. at night. If you're bringing a group of uh, 10 or more, we really ask that you make a reservation. Being in a federal building, there are some security protocols that, that the visitor has to experience, but it's very easy to get here. We're right by the Pentagon uh, Metro Station and right across from the Pentagon City Mall if you want to go shopping or do whatever. So we, we're in a very convenient spot. And you mentioned in the beginning that it's reopening after a renovation. How far back yes. does the museum go? Sure. Well, the museum actually opened in 1999, and it was very, very um, comprehensive and full of so many great artifacts, examples of some of the great uh, great cases and drug takedowns that had happened over its years. So it's been around for almost half the time that DEA's been around. And DEA is celebrating its 50th anniversary in 2023, right next year. So uh, the interactive exhibits and the hands-on activities now cover a lot of the same things, but we can dive deeper now because of the technology that we're using in the exhibit itself. And to do the new design and the new exhibits, where did you get yes. some help from on what state of the art is these days? Well, we had uh, professionals in museum design and fabrication, and uh, we had... Uh, excellent people that primarily from the D.C. area, uh, private companies working with us and uh, over a two-year period. And then as far as the content's concerned, as, uh, as you can imagine, we have the content experts here to really know what to bring forward, especially when we talk about young people and drugs and parents and, and how they can start a conversation with their kids about drugs and the dangers of drug misuse. What about you? Are you a museum person, a drug enforcement person? Uh, what, how do you get to this spot? Well, I appreciate you asking me that. I am not a DEA long-term employee. I'm a museum person, if you want to put it that way. Uh, but I had the experience of using the DEA Museum's traveling exhibit when I ran a science center. And I met so many wonderful DEA people, and I saw the impact of that traveling exhibit in that community and what it did for community conversation. And so we're excited that that exhibit is going back on the road starting this fall, and it will be traveling to different cities across America. It's already been to 19 cities uh, since it was formed, and it's called uh, Drugs, Costs, and Consequences. So that's a big part of what the museum does also. And by the way, does the museum also highlight some of the DEA's activities with respect to legal drugs? Because they have some regulatory and enforcement jobs there also. Yes, absolutely. There is a, a component of uh, the exhibit, uh, the exhibits on what DEA does as an agency. There's also uh, information on how DEA was formed and the predecessor agencies that formed DEA. So there's a lot of that as well. We also have some beautiful artifacts on exhibit that relate to things that happened around the world in DEA's history and different uh, things that were picked up by our agents as they traveled. And what are some of the highly visual 
exhibits people might be expected to uh, wander into when they come there? Sure. Well, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned the El Chapo exhibit yet. So there is an, a spotlight exhibit on that uh, that man and his, uh, you can see his prison uniform and some of the really flashy guns that he used. There is an exhibit on some of the materials that, that our DEA agents use in the field from everything from um, just everyday objects that, uh, that you can imagine. We have a whole exhibit on pills, pill presses, bottles from, uh, from the ni- late 19th century to today, and everything in between. And I really like the forfeited Hells Angels motorcycle. Yes. And so uh, there is that Hells Angels motorcycle seized from um, a drug dealer in uh, Massachusetts a while ago. It's very flashy. It'll be up for a while. It's in what we call our changing exhibit space, and that will change twice a year. Sounds like it's open now, then. The renovation is complete, and people should just get over there. We are open for business, and we welcome everybody. And as I said, Tuesday through Saturday from 10 to 4. If you want to bring your school group or arrange a field trip, maybe in this spring or this fall, please do contact us. Our curator of education is is very excited to welcome young people to the museum. Jan McKay is director of the DEA Museum. By the way, that's in Arlington, Virginia at DEA headquarters. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Please do come down and visit us. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing We were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that, I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger but really using data and so i would say i've consistently been a staunch advocate for black and brown communities but has evolved from being very reactive and saying well don't do this and don't do that to saying let me explain to you why i think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion some of that probably comes from the fact that i've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact and having six kids in a world of social media i think there's something the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits and, and i think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.